Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers focus on the present decade as we close our 10th anniversary flagship season. Even though we we're only a few months into the 20s, it feels like we've been here for a while. On April 28th, 2020, on our online webinite format, these storytellers rolled it back with stories inspired by the theme 20s. And now our featured storytellers, Nicole LeFevre, the Maqueda Stead family, and Joni Tetsuro Schuler. We are rolling with the times. It's story time. We will go to Nicole for her story. So I'm here to tell you about when I was in my 20s and I was hired to look to work as a fire lookout on uh, in a 20 by and live in a 20 by 20 foot building in um, uh, for three months on top of a 9,000 foot peak. And that was all alone. Um, Our training for this lookout work was a little bit ominous. We were taught to spot map and report fires. And then my boss, uh, Roy Inskeep, said something about how girls hold up better than men out there on top of a mountain all alone. And I thought, hold up better. What exactly did that mean? I mean, being alone sounded mighty good to me. Um, But what was there to hold up to? Um, You know, and what exactly is the opposite of holding up? Uh, What did that mean? Well, we look out trainees um, heard stories then about um, the rescue of a man on a lookout who said he was under attack in the middle of the night and a ranger coming up in the dark to um, find the guy in the bushes and the windows on all of his, um, on his lookout, all of them broken out from the inside. And I thought, ooh, holding up. All right, so that was not holding up, breaking all the windows on your lookout. Um, so on a day in early July, I was flown into an airstrip, um, back in the wilderness and a string of pack mules hauled me and all my boxes of food up to the top of a mountain and left me, um, sitting outside a small wooden building. And then they vanished down the trail, um, into the dust. There I was alone standing next to a gigantic snowbank in the dead center of the largest wilderness area in the lower 48 states, 12 miles like from the nearest person and about 20 miles from the nearest road. Um, You know, this building, it had a roof and it had um, a 360 degree view of um, wilderness through 1920s glass paned windows. I had a woodshed with a saw and an axe and a maul. And I had um, uh, been told that there was a spring a quarter mile down the mountain that I could fill up my cubitainers when I ran out of water. Everything I needed was kind of like right there or it kind of needed to be in my boxes um, because no one was going to come and feed me or bring me water or even save me if I fell off the um, catwalk, the thousand feet into the lake below me. Um, definitely not at night and definitely not just for minor things. But I had a bed and food and all the time in the world. So really what could go wrong? Um, hmm. It was really, really quiet though. Like really quiet, so silent. And the words hold up 
um, kind of kept coming back to me. The safest thing seemed to be just staying busy. I kind of set to unpacking and that really didn't take very long. Um, the sunset then and in the darkness, um, I stood on the green painted catwalk and in that wind, I was just, I was peering out and there was not a single human light of any kind anywhere. Um, no headlights, no um, porch lights, just nothing but blackness and then the stars. And the stars were not just above me, but all the way around me and down to the horizon below. It was abstract, but somewhere out there, I knew there were other lookouts on other peaks like myself, but I couldn't see them. The silence was really deep and heavy and humbling. And standing on the catwalk, I felt really, really tiny. Um, it was so quiet. I could hear a branch break in the valley below me by the lake. And when I went back inside and got in bed, I could hear animals moving in the dark under my floorboards. And my heart started beating so hard um, and so fast that I just pulled the covers over my head and slept till morning just to try and keep the silence and the noise out. Um, in the morning, uh, dawn was fairly miraculous, I would say. It was like a miracle because it reminded me to remember that dawn always comes, like it always comes. And that meant that I could make it through another night or any night. Um, and that was a good feeling. But still, day after day up there, it was just me sitting there. I could talk on the forest radio, but really only in formal kind of forest service lingo and really only at check-in times. My job was to spot fires, but the mountains had fresh snow and really, no matter how hard I looked, I really wasn't going to find fires just then. So I alphabetized my food and calculated how long it would last. And then I kind of panicked be, and began to make a plan for rationing it. Um, the silence kind of kept pressing at me. Um, and it felt almost kind of like hunger. And I knew that eating out of boredom was just simply not an option. Um, I had what I had um, to eat. And unless I wanted to eat something like ground squirrels, you know, food just couldn't be the answer. Um, and, you know, still the silence kind of kept pressing. Um, I tried to put my finger on what it was about it. And there was this external silence that was really obvious, but also there was an internal silence. And that was amplified because there were no distractions, no TV, no radio. We didn't even have internet or um, cell phones then. And I, there was a handful of tapes that I was rationing because I really didn't want to get sick of them. Um, and, and, and so I just had to contemplate, you know, what was the problem with this silence? What was I afraid of? I mean, it seriously wasn't about bears or wolverines or bats or snakes or coyotes or anything. Uh, it was questions. Questions kind of kept pressing at the inside of my head. And part of my mind wanted me to think about stuff that maybe I really didn't want to think about. I mean, I was supposed to be looking for fires, um, but at this point it was raining. And I remember this voice, kind of an insistent, 
older sibling or a fatherly sort of voice. And it kept asking these things like, what do you want to do with your life? Why do your relationships suck? Are you gay? What does it mean to be gay? What does it mean to ask yourself something, what something means? And who really answers if you ask yourself what something means? And how can you even have a dialogue with just one person sitting there? Do all people have two voices in the size of their heads? A question ask, asker and maybe a question answerer or a question refusing to answer kind of person. I, I was actually studying the evolution of cognition at Berkeley. And so this me on a peak asking myself the meaning of asking myself questions was probably kind of a perfect storm, I would say. I thought about Roy's words and, um, and how some people hold up better than others out there alone, as he said. And I was a little bit worried that my mind might become that broken record player, that it might dwell in a bad place, um, asking over and over stuff that was just like maybe too hard or unpleasant to answer. You know, like, why was I always alone? Um, there was a whole world of beauty around me, though, and I had lived a huge life. Um, even at 20, I had traveled all over and had read a thousand books, and I had so much beauty to dwell on and think about, and I wondered, why would I be at risk of dwelling in a bad place? I became really, really determined, actually, at that point, to hold up. I mean, I knew I could. I could walk and stay busy. I even walked 30 miles in a day one time. Um, I chopped wood. I hauled water. And, you know, I knew I could look for fires. Um, and honestly, at first, when you're out there, you know, you're looking through these binoculars and, and everything looks like a smoke, uh, like a um, light patch of um, soil on a mountainside or the way this... Uh, steam rises out of the trees after a rain when the sun hits it. Um, but finally, I remember the voice of Basin Butte Lookout on the forest radio. Um, he said, 7-4, this is Basin Butte, I've got a smoke. And I got out my binoculars, I am on my binoculars, and sure enough, um, there was a straight up column of smoke. And that, you can tell, is so different from anything you've seen. It's so, you know, just unmistakable. Um, and so it was right there beside his lookout and, um, helicopters came and the radio suddenly got really loud and fire season kind of, a, you'd say that officially began at that point. And at that point, there was a whole lot less silence. Um, and Basin Butte kept spotting fires days passed and and even I spotted fires on his lookout. Um, it was, you know, it was then that I kind of noticed that the fires were starting after he would check out with me or with 7-4, the dispatch, to say that he was going for a walk. His lookout was on a road, and so when um, he got a motorbike, I noticed that the uh, radius of the fires from his lookout was getting greater. And I thought, oh, am I imagining things? Um, or is this just all a little bit too odd? Um, I was the head lookout. And so it was my job to say something, um, like maybe to say that the fire seemed a bit suspicious, um, to say that maybe 
he wasn't holding up very well and that maybe he was starting the fires himself. Um, I wrestled with the idea kind of a lot. You know, was I right? Was I wrong? I even hiked the 12 miles finally down um, the mountain to the canyon bottom. Uh, there was a mail plane that came in once a week. Uh, and I sent a note out to my boss, Roy. But, you know, by then I was spotting a lot of fires myself all over the forest, like runaway campfires and lightning strikes. In fact, at night, um, lightning would fall sometimes. And, you know, you'd just see this tiny little red flame begin to glow on a mountainside in the darkness. Um, and still, it was so quiet out there, so silent. Um, sometimes I read books, um, sometimes even a book a day. Um, books kind of let me live in somebody else's world for a little time, a little while and somebody else's mind, um, in a world that was either real or imagined. But the thing about books was that they always ended and where I lived, you know, it was, it was good as a good place to be. Um, there was absolutely no reason I should need to escape it. Um, Eventually, I got a message back, actually, from, that law enforcement had given Basin Butte a lie detector test and that he'd passed. But they said the fires were definitely arson. Um, and I could have let my mind dwell on kind of what we all knew. Um, but instead, I decided to watch for fires. And I watched for fires. I realized, really, that there were things that my mind in isolation alone just couldn't solve. Um, and I just began to pay attention to things on the mountain around me to, you know, tiny variations in the sunset and the sunrise to stars and trees and birds and plants, actually to the ants, um, that would gather on my mountaintop after a lightning storm. And when they screamed, you could tell that it was like, it wasn't a sound, it was a smell. And that was amazing. Um, I soaked in all the changes and everything and the microscopic and the huge, um, these things became kind of like a home for my mind, a beautiful place that I could dwell. I held up, um, I learned to cut my hair and get creative, um, when I ran out of toilet paper. Um, I felt full and not hungry. Um, and I came back to work actually on peaks in the wild all alone year after year. Um, and today in the years of the virus or in the time of the virus, my spouse, Carol and I are holding up, we grow vegetables and I dwell in kind of my strong memories and I enjoy the silence. And I hope you do too. And I hope you're holding up. And I send love. Take care. Be well. The Maqueda Stead family. Thank you, Lita and Jody. Uh, so I'm James, and I've been at home. I'm Elizabeth, and I've been at home. I'm Snowden, and I've been at home. I'm Elizabeth, I've been at home. We've made occasional trips to the grocery store and taken daily walks around the neighborhood. James and I both work remotely. The, the only difference, perhaps, is that our house is 275 square feet. So that's a, roughly one-tenth the size of the average American house. Um, we've got four people, three hermit crabs, and we live in a space that's a little smaller than a school bus. 
We have one bathroom, no laundry room, no dishwasher. We've got a dorm fridge for all our food, and, um, and we call our house The Shed. Um, we moved here about two and a half years ago, and in part for the challenge, you know, we, we were living in a much bigger house and, and feeling a little overwhelmed by the excesses of modern life. So we thought, you know, move, we'll move into this tiny space. It could be fun. Um, we'll save a little money. And there might be some lessons here for, for all of us, but also for the kids, most especially that they couldn't learn in the big house. Olson, what do you remember about the big house? I had my own room with a bunk bed for sleep. I filled my room with toys, and when it got too crowded to get to the bed, I just moved rooms. When all the rooms were like that, my mom and dad would clean them. Now, now I'm squished, and when my friends come over, I have to share the room with my brother. Anything else, Olson, that you remember? Yes, the hot tub. I'll tell you what I like: tea and hot tubs. We still have tea. So, so the smallness of the shed is omnipresent, um, but we have a big yard and until recently we traveled frequently so we could really embrace um, our time at home together in such a small space. Um, in, the, in the US, um, the US Department of Housing defines an overcrowded dwelling as fewer than 165 square feet per person. Um, in 2019, there were about 8 million Americans living in overcrowded dwellings. Which statistically includes us. But on an ordinary day, we don't feel overcrowded, which is in great part because of where we live. Because any park feels like our yard and any cafe feels like our office and any museum feels like our after-school hangout. Before virus time, we had date night and pizza night and frequent visits to the zoo. We've visited Vinny before. The kids went to school. We had routines that we could trust, and we've temporarily lost those this spring. So when I began to realize that we were going to be locked down, I wondered for the first time if we'd made a mistake in moving to the shed. Uh, if someone got sick, how would we isolate them, for example? Right. Two years ago, the guys got the flu and self-quarantined at the Red Lion Hotel so they wouldn't get the two of us sick. But that wouldn't be an option now. We also wondered how would we work? How would we get a moment alone? And how would we homeschool in a one-room schoolhouse that we also had to eat, sleep, and work in? We have very limited storage, so we also wondered where we would put all of the extra food and toilet paper. Fortunately, when we moved here, we spent $30 on an Amazon toilet seat today, so uh, toilet paper storage is not our primary concern at the moment. But, um, <clears throat> but I have often thought that you know, my generation has, has kind of been free of many of the catastrophes that have, um, that have impacted other generations. We haven't had a Great Depression. We've had no um, great world wars. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, I'm beginning to think that, that this pandemic may tie our children to the bravery and uh, determination of their ancestors. We named the kids after their great-great-grandmothers. One was a Texas frontier woman. The other moved across the ocean by herself at age 16. James has a grandmother who's almost 100 and calls herself a string saver. She saves little pieces of string to make big string balls, and she saves tiny pieces of soap so she can melt them together and make big soap bars. We've always admired those qualities of 
of thrift and resourcefulness and being givers more than takers and saying we instead of me. And we've tried to parent um, in such a way that would instill those qualities in our kids. Although that sometimes feels challenging being two generations removed from the Great Depression. Um, but in virus time, we are home a lot and it matters greatly that everybody contributes and cooperates. And so a lot of these lessons of grit and gratitude are feeling less theoretical and more real. And so that seems like maybe a silver lining of this time. We definitely saw some of those qualities come up in our kids this Easter. Yeah, the Easter bunny is an important character in our house. Um, and we weren't sure if, he, if she would be deemed an essential worker. So uh, we were able to borrow about a dozen plastic eggs from a good friend. And I, of course, left them outside in the sun for three days. And then when I did bring them in, the kids sequestered them to their bedroom. They came out later in the afternoon and gave me the eggs and asked if I would, would hide them the next day in case the Easter Bunny couldn't come. So James and I took them upstairs to the sleeping loft and opened them that night after the kids had gone to bed. And what we found inside the eggs were tiny pieces of yarn and dried up dandelions, little cut out pieces of paper, and a few pennies. We laughed until we cried. Um, because it was just so poignant that they had built the eggs to prepare their own Easter hunt with, with what they had on hand. Um, before virus time, our kids lived in a world where they could count on so many things. They could count on hugs from friends and visits to parks and um, the Easter Bunny coming each year. How did you decide what to fill the eggs with? We filled the eggs with little things we didn't like anymore. I put one to my love my necklace, but I, it was too small for me, but I knew others would love it. And I also put one of my origami stars in it. Olson gave me the hint of an orange egg so that he could find the necklace, so that I could find the necklace, and I told him pink so he would find the star. It was an agreement we made. So we're all home together. Um, you know, we've been talking to friends and family frequently. And of course, we are all realizing our interdependence on other people in the community and around the world. And we're also realizing at home um, even more things that we can do without. Um, you know, things aren't the same as they used to be. Um, but, you know, like the Easter eggs, our lives will go on filled with with different things, uh, maybe humbler things and different kinds of activities that we can do at home. So in January, we set a family goal to learn to play the ukulele. And uh, we started our lessons in mid-February. Uh, some of us had two, I think some also had three lessons before we went into lockdown, but our goal had been to learn the ukulele and then at the end of the year to play a concert for our friends, the Pettits in Hawaii. But since we've got you all here tonight, we thought we'd perhaps play just a short song. It's, it's one we've, uh, we've been learning here the last couple of weeks together, I guess. And you may choose to mute us now. That could be a wise decision. We'll just be a minute.
against all odds. Honey, we're big door cries. We're gonna spite our noses right off of our faces. There won't be nothing but big old hearts dancing in our eyes. Thank you for humoring us. That was a verse from uh, John Prine's In Spite of Ourselves. John Prine died on April 7th of this year from COVID-19. Joni Tetsuro Schuler. Wonderful. Everyone, it's a warm spring afternoon last May. I am in a small agrarian town of Wilder, Idaho, known for its prodigious hops farms and, well, not much else. I've been anxiously preparing for this day for months, and now the fateful day has finally arrived. I'm sitting in the car, and I am nervous as hell. The faint smell of manure hangs in the air. I'm there for work, conducting surveys for a research study on human-animal environmental health through the University of Denver's Institute for Human-Animal Connection. Wilder happened to be selected as one of four communities in the whole country for this intervention study, and I get to serve as the local research assistant collecting data in people's homes. I'm about to conduct my first door-to-door survey for the year, and the fall, fall prior, last, that last fall, um, had been a significantly less anxiety-provoking experience, but this time around, I am endlessly ruminating in my head, am I safe? Will they find out? Will I be accepted doing this here in rural Idaho, being who I am? You see, I'd moved recently to the city of trees from the town of Stumps, Portland, that is Stump Town. I was there for a brief year and a half, uh, living on an educational farm in the Southeast and doing environmental education through AmeriCorps. It was a very formative time in my identity formation in my mid twenties, as is the case for most young adults at that age. You know, dance parties, vegan restaurants, social justice activism, hiking in the Columbia River Gorge, you know, the list goes on. Um, after my partner and I made the decision to move here to Boise for his job, I was ecstatic, but also pretty ambivalent. Um, ecstatic to live in the city where my dad grew up, where my grandma lived, um, the refuge where I, you know, grew up escaping every summer. And yet, I was also equally ambivalent to kind of leave the weirdo loving haven, the place that had really shaped me, that was Portland. Um, Given who I inherently am, I am uh, biracial, queer, vegan, Buddhist, essentially a tree-hugging hippie. I struggled to adapt uh, to a new state of white cis heteronormativity. The vulnerabilities, the doubts, the visceral fears that I was experiencing were constantly front of mind as I navigated acclimating to this new societal milieu um, that was very different from where I had come. Um, I also grew up in larger cities my whole life. I was born in DC and lived in Tokyo and New York. And so to be in a much smaller place that was substantially different in many ways from where I'd grown up was a shock. But at the same time, there was also something really beautiful to that. It presented an opportunity, a glaring opportunity to experiment, to question, to you know, start anew in a way that I never had really an opportunity to do. Later that year, I am backstage at the Balcony Club downtown doing a half decent and also pretty bad job applying makeup for the very first time uh, for my daring, delightful drag debut. Drag. My partner, a seasoned performer whose alter ego Gaia Indica focuses on ecological themes, um, is performing a number that night based on bubble bees. And he wanted to do a song 
uh, called Color by MNEK, and I was asked to be his flower, his floral backup dancer. Um, and actually the song that Lita just played was that same song. It's a really wonderful song. And I was initially reticent to take on the opportunity, as exciting as it sounded. Um, at that time, drag really was still pretty ostentatious. It was a little bit too ostentatious, a little bit too superficial, splash too risque uh, for my liking. And yet here I was, stepping into this very new world of genderqueer, gender-bending expression that was ultimately, surprisingly, incredibly, and exhilaratingly fantastic. Uh, though the onstage experience was pretty messy and a ton embarrassing, I could barely look forward, I was so nervous. The offstage experience of effeminately altering my facial and bodily appearance in what was a very safe and affirming space and as a resplendent flower, no less sparked an ember in the depths of, at that time, my non-binary soul, that something in me wanted to do more of this, um, profoundly so. Jump several weeks later, this is in November, I'm on a short vacation to visit my friend B, um, enjoying some splendid time catching up and exploring her new city home. Um, as fashion, uh, avid fashionistas, uh, we had bonded over our shared love of style and of fashion and had dedicated a good portion of my visit to some shopping. So one afternoon we went to a flea market and we came across this little boho chic stall. Um, it was a young woman selling some of her old clothes um, and it just, there was an array of really, really beautiful pieces. Um, and I ended up leaving that shop with a women's green blouse, which at that time had been a, a pretty big deal for me. Um, gender bending was still you know, pretty out of the norm for me. I was still identifying and presenting male and to fathom presenting in a more effeminate form, wearing women's clothing in Idaho, was nearly out of the question. Um, and yet something subconscious and yearned for something that would, some decision that would make me a more full-fledged version of myself, something where I could really hold onto and fully show the divine feminine that was in me my whole life. Um, so yeah, something that would allow me to be myself in full abundance. In route home, um, I am at the Minneapolis airport on a treadmill desk. They actually have a, a desk that's connected to a treadmill. So I'm on this desk, I have my laptop in front of me, I've got a few hours before my flight back to Boise and I'm just bored out of my mind, I have nothing to do. And it was really a very odd and yet beautiful opportunity to just sit there and think, sit there and spend time on my laptop doing something that was productive. I had no work to do, I went through all my emails, I was pretty bored and then for some reason that I honestly don't recall off the top of my head at the time, I typed into Google male to female gender transitioning and it just kind of came out of me. And it was really the sense that my subconscious was working in this way and in, in this taking advantage of this opportunity and saying this is finally an opportunity to just sit and read and learn and digest and reflect on everything that had been bubbling up in me for at that point about a year where I was really starting to explore who I was in a very sincere and authentic way. Um, being half Japanese in Japan, queerness and trans identity is really not something that is accepted and is common. And I lived in Tokyo for six years and you just, you don't see it, you don't talk about it. And so in my head, there was just never this option. And back at the airport, I'm getting into this rabbit hole of hormones and electrolysis, uh, voice training, surgeries, and my heart just started racing. I was so excited for the first time in my life. At that point, I was 28. I really had this epiphany, just, I want to transition. I want to hormonally, socially, spiritually transition. Um, and I want to start now and yesterday, in fact. 
Um, and so upon returning home, I broke the news to my partner and soon thereafter, I met with a doctor and a therapist and began the transition process, which is so much more than one could ever expect. It's a lifelong process. People around you, the world around you has to transition as you transition. Um, and with all the exciting wonders and all of the finalities also came a myriad of struggles, um, having to break the news to my family and my friends. Um, operating in a world um, where I just didn't quite know how to act, wearing makeup, um, with the hormones, growing boobs, <laughs> uncovering the mysteries of bras. Bras were always super mysterious to me. And what was actually one of the most poignant things was losing my male privilege and learning firsthand the realities of what it is to be a female presenting person, a female identifying person in this world, which is one that is heavily misogynistic. And Overcoming that, those hurdles brought me joy and finding the joy also presented hurdles. And it's been a constant experience. I'm still transitioning, life continues. Um, and nearly 20 months later, uh, here I am, um, liberated and truly happily, happy as ever. Um, you know, hindsight 2020 is a really funny thing. I know it's kind of a cliche term that people often use, but it truly is a very, very interesting phenomenon where we're able to look back on our past and think, what was it that happened and how is my brain changing it, you know, and seeing it in a much more rosy way, in a much more positive light. And even more interesting to me in this whole process of transitioning and accepting who I really am is reacquainting myself with a new version of how I am, how I live, how the world sees me. Um, it's so interesting. And looking back now at the age of 29, 27 weeks until I complete, <laughs> I've tried to slip in as many 20s as I can, 27 weeks until I complete what researcher Meg Jay calls the defining decade. Um, it's clear as day to me now, looking back, that this was always something that I wanted to do. Um, and yet, as I mentioned, the idea of trans transgender and transitioning was just never there. I knew I was always a queer person, but to me, that was simply that I was a gay male, not a transgender female or, or female identifying person. Um, the role of male was just so prevailing. The fear of backlash was so deep. Um, but really through taking conscious efforts to thoughtfully explore myself, um, giving myself time to cultivate self-love, shifting my perspective, um, to see that what I perceived to be grave weaknesses, namely my femininity and something that was targeted by bullies, something that what society was deeming was not good, all of a sudden now became my most powerful asset and something that I could emerge from and, and become a much more resolute person in now my 30s as I become a mostly fully developed adult. Um, I'm actually soon going to begin my master's in social work and hopefully dedicate my whole career to counseling um, queer and trans people, um, people of color, people in need where trauma has really impacted them. And I'm first and foremost a living artifact of that and yet also the benefactor of therapy. And I just more than anything want to ensure that People of all identities, um, of all races, of all backgrounds are able to enjoy their lives just like everyone else who may not have to suffer from those same differences. So I'm back in Wilder now. Um, I enter this woman's home. This is the first survey I'm doing, female presenting, and it ended up going super easy, super, super simple. And that was the first of what ended up being 136 surveys that I did that year in this very small rural town. And it was honestly the most validating experience that I've had uh, since transitioning was being able to be in rural Idaho, having conversations with people where 
they either didn't know that I was transgender or that they didn't care. And regardless, it's been a very affirming experience knowing that ultimately, as long as you're who you are, as long as that process is something that you hold that resolution through and through, um, you know, it's gonna, it's, it's all gonna work out. Um, this year obviously is a different story. Um, we will see with the pandemic whether I'm even allowed to go back uh, during our survey period. But you know, alas, life goes on. All of us are continuing our lives. Um, I'm continuing my journey to feminize and to brighten the world as best I can. Um, and truly, thank goodness, I found the tenacity in my tender little sensitive heart to take the leap and to flourish in all the ways that I have since that fateful day. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsors, Boise State Public Radio and Radio Boise. And our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest was Lita Harris Neustetter. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. Also, check out our YouTube channel. I'm Jody Eichelberger. Thanks for being a part of our story.